Well, let's turn to Matthew chapter 16. Matthew chapter 16 this morning. The brutal death of Jesus of Nazareth on a Roman cross startled his disciples. This truth has important implications for interpreting the sudden resurrection of Jesus from the grave Sunday morning. If they did not expect him to die, they certainly were not prepared for a resurrection. Last Sunday for Palm Sunday, I preached a sermon titled, The Cross Reorients Our Thinking. Today, Easter Sunday, let's explore how the resurrection reorients our thinking. And let's begin with Jesus' first prediction of both his death and his resurrection. It's found here in Matthew 16. Jesus is approximately two years and three months into his public preaching ministry. His impending death lies perhaps nine months away. Jesus has substantially completed his preaching ministry in Galilee. He has established his true identity as the Christ. And here in Caesarea Philippi, Peter confesses Jesus' true identity. You find his words in verse 16. You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Notice the sequel. For the first time, Jesus tells his disciples privately of his impending death and resurrection. Verse 21. From that time began, or Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. And how did the disciples react? Well, Peter in verse 22 exclaims, this will never happen to you. Turn now to Mark 9. A short time later, after Jesus returned south to Galilee, he predicted his death a second time. And again, his prediction was made in a private conversation with his disciples. Mark tells us, beginning with verse 30 of Mark chapter 9, they went on from there and passed through Galilee. And he did not want anyone to know. For he was teaching his disciples, saying to them, The Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him. And when he is killed, after three days he will rise. And Mark adds, verse 32, But they, that's the disciples, did not understand the saying, and were afraid to ask him. Turn now to Luke chapter 9. Luke actually records the same prediction that we just read in Mark 9 that Jesus made of his own death. And Luke really emphasizes the disciples' complete lack of understanding. He also relates Jesus' idiom of letting his words just sink into their ears. Look at the end of verse 43, Luke 9. Jesus said to his disciples, Let these words sink into your ears 
As if you're not really going to understand this, you really have to let this sink in. The Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men. Verse 45. But they did not understand this saying. And it was concealed from them so that they might not perceive it. And they were afraid to ask him about this saying. So Jesus' death is looming out there on the horizon, but the disciples are clueless. The disciples! Turn now to Luke 18. Here Jesus predicts his death a third time. Jesus journeys along the road to Jerusalem for his final Passover. And his disciples are still confused. Worse than confused, actually, they are completely ignorant. Don't take my word for it. Look at the text. Verse 31. And taking the twelve, he said to them, See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and everything that is written about the Son of Man by the prophets will be accomplished. For he will be delivered over to the Gentiles, and will be mocked and shamefully treated and spit upon And after flogging him, they will kill him. And on the third day, he will rise. Jesus, my friends, could not be any clearer. He will be beaten, killed, and then resurrected. And this was all predicted in the prophets. Surely the disciples must understand now, right? Wrong. Verse 34, look at the words. But they understood none of these things. This saying was hidden from them. They did not grasp what he said. The disciples are still clueless. So again, can I point out the obvious? If they don't expect him to die, they certainly are not looking for a resurrection. So what exactly did the disciples expect of the Christ as he journeyed toward Jerusalem? If we can answer that question, we will be well on our way to discovering how the resurrection just reoriented their thinking. The Bible the disciples read was the Old Testament. They did not have a scrap of the New Testament. Paul was still an unbeliever. Twenty-five years would pass before he penned his great chapter in the resurrection, 1 Corinthians chapter 15. The disciples had yet to experience Pentecost and the explosive progress of the gospel throughout the Roman world. They understood nothing of the Gentile harvest. In fact, when it began, God had to send a vision to Peter three times before he went out and evangelized a single Gentile. Fifteen years after the death of Jesus, the Jerusalem Council convened to figure out what to do with the sudden influx of all these Gentiles into the church. And many disciples still struggled with the notion of Gentile inclusion. It would be another 10 years before Paul wrote Romans 9 through 11, trying to piece together the mystery of Israel's rejection of her Messiah and the Gentile harvest. So all that is still future. In fact, when Jesus arrived in Jerusalem, he delivered the Olivet Discourse. And in that discourse, he included a prediction of Jerusalem's desolation and the complete destruction of her temple, every last stone. And the disciples' response is quite revealing. They assumed if that happens, the world will end. That's it. 
the world is ended. They were not anticipating Pentecost or a Gentile harvest. The world was ending, and in fact, it was ending the wrong way. The disciples did not read the Old Testament the way that we do today. We read it as a collection, a unified collection of books from Genesis to Malachi, all pointing to Jesus. That's how we read it. In fact, the last book of the Jewish canon was not Malachi, it was 2 Chronicles. The final chapter of 2 Chronicles tells of Jerusalem captured and destroyed in a fiery holocaust. That's how their Old Testament ended. The Jews believed that one day their Messiah, their Christ would appear and will restore the fortunes of Jerusalem and her temple. In fact, Luke tells us that Anna, that old lady in the temple, was waiting for, quote, the redemption of Jerusalem. That's what she was waiting for. Redeem Jerusalem. But now Jesus, whom they hoped was the Christ, predicted exactly the opposite. Jerusalem would be destroyed again. And a tribulation as great as any in human history. Friends, to the disciples, none of this makes any sense. Numerous prophetic passages spoke of God actually returning and blessing and prospering their nation and their land. The Jews expected their Messiah would come in a new exodus moment and launch a new deliverance of his people. And that's why they just kept coming back to Jerusalem every year to celebrate Passover. They just kept coming back because the new exodus will come. Their Messiah would indeed come and establish his kingdom and bring in the golden age at world's end. All the prophecies of peace, prosperity, and restoration would come true with the advent of their Messiah at the end of the world. That's how they read the Old Testament. And that end did not include Jerusalem's destruction, but her final liberation. For the Jew, history was teleological. Do you know this term? It means it has a final destination. History is going somewhere. There's a glorious outcome, a final kingdom age of peace and prosperity. And when the Messiah comes, he will bring about the end of the story. He will bring about that grand utopia at the end of the world. The Christ comes at the end of human history. That's crucial. But here Jesus shows up in the middle of human history and predicts Jerusalem's desolation. When you understand Jewish expectations of their Messiah, then three truths come into sharp focus. Number one, Jesus died unexpectedly. The Jews did not realize the Messiah was also the suffering servant. Same person. Who would have guessed? When Isaiah says he was numbered with transgressors, Well, how could he be talking about the Messiah? The Christ? Numbered with transgressors? When Isaiah spoke of a visage so marred, so revolting that we just turn away our gaze, how could he be speaking of the Messiah? 
If the Jews did not expect to see their Messiah hanging dead on a cross, then they certainly didn't see through that cross to the resurrection. And that leads to a second truth. Jesus rose unexpectedly. He died unexpectedly and he rose unexpectedly. And that truth was so surprising, the disciples failed to understand the resurrection after Jesus clearly predicted it three times. Three times, he told them. But they simply had no categories for processing a dead Messiah, much less a resurrected Messiah. And that leads to a third truth. Jesus disappeared unexpectedly. Jesus, after he rose, which they were not expecting, went up to the clouds, through the clouds, to sit on a heavenly throne, leaving Jerusalem and the temple to their complete and utter destruction. If the resurrection renewed the disciples' hope, the ascension just dashed it all to pieces again. Just stand with those disciples outside Jerusalem watching Jesus just disappear up into those clouds. What, what question must have been in their minds? I think you can put it in two words. Now what? Now what? Friends, that question, now what, is essential to understanding the rest of the New Testament. Now what? The disciples have to rethink the, entire, the Messiah's entire mission, even their own preaching for that matter. They had been commissioned by Jesus to preach the gospel of the kingdom, and they'd been going all over Galilee doing that. But certainly they could not have been preaching his death and resurrection if the words of Luke 18 and verse 34 are true. They understood none of these things. They have to rethink everything. They have to reorient their minds around a Messiah who dies, who resurrects, and then who ascends in the middle of human history. That changes everything. Now thankfully, Jesus promised that his Holy Spirit would come all right, and guide them into all truth and bring back to their memory things that he had said to them plainly. They didn't get it, but the Holy Spirit's going to come along and make it all clear to them. Fact is, we tend to think of this sort of seamless continuity between the Old and New Testaments, and that's because we've had 2,000 years now to just sort of smooth out that transition. But that's not how the disciples experienced Jesus. Jesus turned their whole world upside down and inside out, and then he disappeared. And from the moment that Jesus resurrected in the middle of human history, they had to just reorient their entire view of the world. And let's look at two passages that actually speak to this orientation. The first is Luke chapter 24. Luke chapter 24. After Jesus resurrected, he appeared, the two disciples, on the road to Emmaus. And they were confused by recent events in Jerusalem, namely Jesus' death and reports of his resurrection. And they expressed their hope that Jesus of Nazareth might be Israel's redeemer. But they lost hope at the crucifixion. Would you observe a very important line in verse 21? The disciples claim... But we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. Well, that was Anna's hope. 
And that's precisely what the disciples expected from their Messiah. Their Messiah would indeed redeem Israel from slavery. But their statement reads as if they've lost hope. The Messiah didn't come at the end of history and restore Israel's fortunes. So their thinking has to be totally reoriented. But they were not entirely wrong. Jesus did indeed come to redeem Israel. But they failed to understand that redemption came through a cross and a tomb. Further, they failed to understand that Jesus hadn't come merely to redeem Israel. He had a mission to the nations. God promised to bless all nations through the Abrahamic covenant. Now the truth is, Jesus' true mission through a cross and a tomb was indeed embedded in the Old Testament all along. It had been there. They just lacked the spiritual vision to see it. So the resurrected Jesus began a theological reorientation process with these two disciples with verse 25. And he said to them, O foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. What did they miss? Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things? And enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the thing concerning himself. So Jesus just works right through the Old Testament, and he shows how time and again it really did point straight to him. They should not have been surprised by his death and resurrection. And thankfully, when he later broke bread with them, it all just came together. Look at verse 31. Here we read of a moment of just divine enlightenment. Their eyes were opened, and they recognized him. Jesus was indeed the Christ, the long-awaited Redeemer of the Old Testament. But that Christ had to die according to the Old Testament, and he had to rise. They just had not understood that before. And now let's turn to Acts chapter 1. Acts chapter 1. And here we have a second passage which tells of this reorientation process with an even larger group of disciples. These disciples are still clinging to old ideas. And Jesus comes along and just changes their whole paradigm. Luke tells us in verse 3, He, that is Jesus, presented himself alive to them after suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. So again, Jesus left no doubt that he was very much alive. But he also has to reorient their whole outlook on the future. So look at verse 6. When they came together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? What are they looking for? They're still looking for Israel's golden age. They're looking for the end of history, the Messiah to redeem Israel. That's what Anna was looking for. So here comes the reorientation, verse 7. He said to them, It is not for you to know the times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority. And friends, that statement must have confused and bewildered his disciples 
If Jesus is the Messiah and he proved his power by resurrecting from the dead, then he is invincible. And that would be a really great time to bring in the kingdom. That would be a great time to restore Israel's glory, wouldn't it? But Jesus basically says, it's none of your business when I'm going to restore Israel. Now tell that to the prophecy experts who are always wrong but never in doubt. Here's your business, verse 8. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. This is your business. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. There's the end. Friends, that does not sound like Israel's kingdom now. That sounds like global mission now. That's a total reorientation. We've got to rethink our whole conception of the Messiah's mission in human history. Our new business is not to worry about Israel's kingdom. That really is not our business, to worry about Israel's kingdom, but to become witnesses to the ends of the earth. So in Luke 24 and Acts 1, we have this whole reorientation process of disciples. We must undergo this when, the disciple, when Jesus, the Messiah, appears in the middle of human history rather than the end. Everything has to be rethought. They are not standing at the world's end. They are, in fact, standing at the starting line of a whole new mission. And that mission was to preach Christ's death and resurrection to the ends of the earth. And there really are two crucial observations that follow from this. Here's the first. They are not standing at the end of God's great restoration project when he's going to make all things new through his death and resurrection. Quite the opposite. They were standing at the beginning of the great restoration project. At the beginning, not the end, the beginning. A project that has been revealed through all the Old Testament, they just lack the spiritual vision to see it. And I'm using that word restoration because of what Paul or Peter says in Acts 3. He calls it the times of refreshing or the time for restoring all things. Easter was not the end, but a new beginning. The beginning of the great restoration project. And here, my friends, is a second really, really crucial observation. They were commissioned to participate in God's great restoration project. The second half of human history involved God's witnesses carrying his gospel to the world's end. They were called to participate. Do we understand? The Messiah came and resurrected in the middle of human history so that we can participate in the restoration project that he's carrying out to the rest of human history. In fact, all of what we call church history, the history of the world since Easter is part of God's great redemption project to recover the nations for his glory. We are actually living inside the project and we are commissioned by the power of the Holy Spirit to participate in the story as it travels from Jerusalem to Emmaus and on to the ends of the earth. That's a whole new way of looking at the world. 
And friends, let's just follow the story for just a moment into the New Testament. Remember that question, now what? Now what? Well, the 23 New Testament books after the four Gospels explain the now what. Working our way into the book of Acts, the first history of the church, we discover Jesus' disciples, guess what, going everywhere, and they are preaching the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And they argue that Jesus was indeed the Christ. And they explain how he died. And they explain how he resurrected. And in fact, they really do put an enormous amount of attention, give an enormous amount of attention to the resurrection. In fact, if you look at Peter's sermon at Pentecost, he devotes about ten times the amount of material to the resurrection as he does to the cross. Now that, of course, does not undermine at all the importance of the cross. It's not what I'm saying, but it certainly does elevate the importance of the resurrection as indispensable to the gospel that the apostles preached. And Paul's first sermon, Acts 13, does likewise the same thing. It really magnifies the resurrection. And they're thinking the cross brings the old world and the tyranny of Adam to an end. The reign of sin is brought to an end through the cross. That cross, in one sense, is the final chapter of the Old Covenant. It's the final chapter of the first half of human history where God is just going to bring decisively to an end the reign of sin. The final sacrifice was the cross. And it was a sacrifice not in the temple, but of the temple. Beginning now... With the resurrection, the disciples have to get on with the business of explaining the second half of human history. And they go everywhere preaching the death of Jesus Christ and also the new beginning through the resurrection. They don't separate these two. They really are both part of the gospel. And last week, we heard the Roman order, Cicero, proclaim these words. The very word cross should be far removed from the person of the Roman citizen. From his thoughts, his eyes, and his ears, the very mention of the cross is unworthy of a Roman citizen. In light of that, do you appreciate the irony of how the book of Acts ends? Here you have a Roman citizen, a Roman citizen, preaching the gospel in Rome with a whole line of churches strung out behind him all the way back to Jerusalem. And friends, that's the book of Acts. That's the beginning of the great restoration project which is fueled and energized by the Holy Spirit. It's already begun. And church history just carries us forward all the way down to the present hour. This is why you should all study church history. Okay. But friends, how then do we live inside the restoration project which was launched at the resurrection and the answer is very simple. Just keep reading. The epistles. The epistles. The epistles largely explain the new Christian life for those who have died and resurrected with Christ and have been added to his church. That's their function. The gospels speak of the historical fact of the death and resurrection of Jesus. But why did he die? Why did he come back to life? And why did he disappear without bringing about the end of history? 
at the resurrection, the disciples are still very confused about all this. This needs some further explanation. And further, how do we live in this restoration project in light of those questions? And that's where the epistles come in. They explain to us what life looks like now inside the restoration project. So let's just take in a couple passages. Let's first turn to Romans chapter 6. All right, lots of passages today. Sorry about that, but we are just sort of moving our way through the gospel in the New Testament. Romans chapter 6. Paul explains in Romans 6 that what happened to Jesus didn't happen merely to Jesus. Would you have known that when you looked on that cross and saw the empty tomb? What happened to Jesus didn't happen merely to Jesus. What happened to Jesus happened to all believers who have put their faith in the Messiah. And since that's true, I can live out a new identity in Christ inside that great restoration project. Look at verse 1, chapter 6. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? Do I have to continue living in my sin any longer? In fact, should I just maybe go on living in my sin to magnify God's grace and pardon my sins? Some Christians apparently thought that since God forgives sins through the cross of Christ, well, then by all means, we just sin all the more so we can really magnify God's grace. But Paul basically says that's nonsense. Why? Because he saved us in order to participate in the great restoration project. Just keep reading. By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Wait a minute, when did I die to sin? When did I die to sin? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death. That's when I died. In order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, guess what? We too might walk in newness of life. We did indeed die with Christ, and our baptism pictured that death. But wait a minute, we've also been raised to Christ in a whole new life. We are in the restoration project now, so now what? Now what? What's this newness of life look like? Well, glance down at verse 12. Paul explains that through our resurrected life in Christ, we no longer have to let sin reign in our mortal bodies. That's what it looks like to live in this newness of life that began with the resurrection. I like to think of it this way. The cross is the foundation for our justification. God looks at you and he says, your sins were punished in Christ. The cross is the foundation for your justification. And the resurrection is the foundation for your sanctification. And they're both part of the gospel. My sins, friends, were punished. They were pardoned at the cross. I was crucified with Christ. When Christ died, I died. He was punished for my sins, and I'm justified. And now I am already resurrected with Christ. And that means that sin no longer has to reign in my mortal body. Apart from the resurrection, there's no hope of sanctification. But now that I'm resurrected with Christ, 
I can go on and participate in that great restoration project. So really, what we need to do is just live out the reality of Easter, not just on Easter Sunday once a year, but we need to live out the reality of Easter every day of our lives. That's what sanctification is all about. You really learn to love the resurrected Christ more than your sin. That's sanctification. As I said on Wednesday night, I don't know any other way to really be sanctified until you learn to love the resurrected Christ more than your sin. Skip ahead now one chapter. Look at Romans 7 and verse 4. Let's just keep going with this for just a moment. Look what Paul says. Likewise, my brothers, you have also died to law through, look at this, the body. There was a body that was pierced to the body of Christ so that you may belong to another, to him who has been raised from the dead, in order that we may bear fruit to God. I died, look at that, through the body of Jesus. And I've already been raised with Jesus. So now what? The answer is very simple. Go bear fruit. I can participate in the project. Easter is not merely a singular event that happened on a Sunday morning 2,000 years ago. Although it did happen on a Sunday morning 2,000 years ago. All right? But that's not all there is to it. Easter is this, it's this whole new reality that came into being so that we can now live as fruit-producing Christians. That's what Paul is arguing. We live in the new reality. Skip ahead now one more chapter, chapter 8. And just notice where this whole restoration project is headed. Romans 8 and verse 11. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life, notice this, to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. Did you read those words, mortal bodies? Quite literally, because of Easter, you are going to get your body back. Yes, your body. The Spirit is going to breathe life into your mortal body. And don't be surprised, Jesus took his own body back. The Spirit did not resurrect a ghost. Jesus says, touch my hands and see, for a ghost does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. God became human in the virgin womb and God immortalized his humanity in the virgin tomb. You're going to get your body back. And it's not just your body that's going to be restored in the Great Restoration Project. Just keep reading. Look at verse 21. The creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. Look at those words. Finally, set free. It's waiting for something. It wants to be set free. God will, in fact, restore the whole creation. Easter guarantees it. Now, friends, don't, mis- don't, don't anyone misunderstand what I'm about to say. It might be a little shocking, but I don't want it to be shocking. All right? Christianity is the most earthly of the world's great religions. I didn't say worldly. I said Earthly. The great religions of the world, from Buddhism to Hinduism to Islam to all varieties of Gnosticism, New Ageism, have all proposed means of escaping the creation, liberating ourselves from the creation. Christ has found a way to restore the creation, to bring in a new heaven and a new earth, because when God looked at everything that he made and he said, it's very good, 
He meant that. He doesn't like seeing us ruin it. He will restore his creation. Well, when will that creation finally be restored, finally set free? Well, keep reading and read very carefully. Connect verses 22 and 23 with verse 21. For we know, here's what's happening, the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves and our bodies, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption of sons, the redemption of our bodies. What are we waiting for before everything can be redeemed? Paul argues that we are waiting for the redemption of our bodies. When God is done redeeming our bodies at long last, then he will, in fact, redeem the whole creation. In other words, he's got some work to do on us first. That's what Paul is saying. For the present hour, we have not been fully redeemed, restored, recreated. And because of that, we still live in this fallen, broken creation. But our sanctification, our restoration is worked out in the context of this fallen, broken world. And only when God is finally done with us, the restoration project that we participate in, then and only then will that whole creation obtain its freedom, its liberty from the curse. And I think as Christians, we often get this wrong. We often talk as if we're waiting for the whole creation to be restored, when in fact, it's the creation that's waiting on us. We are the problem. After all, we are the ones who brought all the trouble into the creation in the first place in the Edenic Rebellion. It was all us. It wasn't the creation's fault, it was us. So when God is restoring us, and when the great restoration project is done, then the creation itself, he tells us, will be finally liberated. So verse 21, creation will obtain its freedom when? Well, verse 23, when our bodies are finally redeemed. So friends, think of it this way. If you really long for the new creation, all right, well then... It's very simple. Get busy working on yourself. Putting to death what is worldly in you. The power of the resurrection. That's what Paul is arguing in Romans. And now let's turn to one more passage, Colossians chapter 3. This is a passage I preached from two weeks ago as we considered the relationship between the gospel and social justice. Colossians chapter 3. We were wondering how best to care for our suffering Ukrainian brethren. The fact is, we do still live in a fallen, broken world full of evil and injustice, a world full of strife, racial strife, war, political corruption, sensuality, addiction, rampant godlessness. It's all around us. So how do we live in the here and now? Well, Paul is really quite unequivocal. Easter is the foundation for our sanctification. Look at verse 1. If, and that can be translated since, right, this is the new reality, since, since you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Remember where he went when he ascended? That's where he is. So if you've been raised with Christ, seek those things which are above, set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on the earth, for you have died and your life is hidden with Christ and God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. So friends, Paul claims in verse 3 that we did in fact die with Christ. Same thing he taught in Romans. And clearly Paul also says in verse 1, we've been raised with Christ. So what happened to Jesus happened to me. 
This is this new identity I now have in Christ. And in this new identity, I get to participate in the restoration project. Well, what does that look like? Well, just keep on reading. Here's what you do. How do I do this? How do I live out this identity? Well, verse 5. Here you go. Put to death. Therefore, what is earthly in you? Like what? Sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. In these, you too once walked when you were living in them. You were living in that other reality. But now you must put them all away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator, which is in fact Jesus Christ. You've put on Christ. So here's how you live inside the project. Since I have been raised with Christ at Easter, I now have to kill off my old self. And as I pointed out two weeks ago, Paul here is not speaking in this context of a me versus them relationship. Did you see that? This is how so much discussion of social justice in our world goes. It's always us versus them. We're the good guys, they're the bad guys, right? That's not what Paul says. Paul says it's a me versus me relationship. The problem's right here. We are never going to solve the world's problems until we recognize the problem, friends, isn't everybody else. The problem is you. The problem is me. We are the ones that need to be restored. And that's why Paul says in verse 5, put to death what is earthly in you. But again, don't separate verse 5 from verse 1. It's really crucial you keep those together. Verse 5 is only possible, you can only put to death what is earthly in you because of the reality of verse 1. Since you have been raised with Christ, since you have this new identity in Christ, because that's true, I can participate with Christ in the destruction of the old self and putting on the new self. And what then flows out of all of this? Well, here's just one application. One application in verse 11 is racial justice. Here there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all in it all. Friends, what, what if in fact we had a whole country actively trying to achieve justice between warring factions in light of the resurrection? How well would that suggestion go over in our woke culture? Let's, let's try all this in light of the resurrection. What if we viewed ourselves as jointly participating in the restoration project, putting to death what is wicked in our own hearts, and then and only then helping others? That's what Paul is talking about. So friends, these really are the kinds of questions we should be asking. How does the resurrection and new creation just change my thinking about my relationship to my neighbor? How about this? How does the resurrection and new creation change my thinking about my vocation? In fact, as I thought about that question all this week, I decided I think next week I want to come back and do one more sermon on the resurrection and show us how that really shapes our thinking about our vocations. I mean, what do you do all day? And how does that relate to the resurrection? It has everything to do with the resurrection. I'll show you that, Lord willing, next week. 
All right. The, the applications could just go on and on. I'm actually thinking about some things for the summer where we might really develop this. I don't even know. All right. But how about this? How does the resurrection, the new creation, change my attitude toward the stewardship of the fallen creation that's all around me? It's waiting, for my, it's waiting for my redemption. How should I care for the planet that God made? I'm not going eco-friendly on you or anything like that. All right? But I think our, our world thinks about these questions, but in the totally wrong context. It's like there's a resurrection coming. We've got to reinterpret everything, reorient everything in light of Christ and his death and resurrection. What, what, what would a world look like without poverty and sickness and strife and political corruption and addiction sensuality, it's just everywhere. What would that world look like? Well, that's the world that through the gospel we should participate with Christ in and trying to bring about. My view of my vocation is to participate with Jesus in his own restoration project. But friends, again, it really does begin right here. Not with everybody else. It begins, verse 5, put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you. That's where it's got to begin. So again, through Christ's cross, we are justified. And through Christ's resurrection, we are sanctified. So call upon the power of the cross to put to death the old man. And call upon the power of the resurrection now to live out your new identity. That's sanctification. We are called to participate in the resurrection life of Christ who came in the middle of human history. And even now summons us to labor with him toward the restoration of all things. And when that project is finally done, we won't turn there, but you might want to turn there this afternoon. 1 Corinthians 15, Paul tells us how it's all going to end. Here's what he says. Then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power. The Christ will indeed, as the Jews expected, come at the end of human history and arrange everything beneath the feet of the Father. But for the present, reorient your thinking with the truth that Christ came in the middle of human history. Shall we pray?